0: we would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is produced, the Wajak Noongar people, and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Courtney, we're back in the hot seat again.
1: Hello, how are you doing? How are you? Good, good. A little tired, but you know,
0: getting there. It's the way (laughs) way of the world at the moment. Even though it's winter, we're wearing multiple different hats as researchers so (laughs) metaphorically yeah exactly yeah so i'm pretty excited about this episode today um
1: it's actually a we we promised a while ago that we would get these people back on the podcast to kind of talk about this topic so it's so glad that um we managed to to get it back on so
0: we've had um I should say Associate Professor Katie Atwell. So apologies to Katie that I called her mm-hmm. doctor at the start of this episode, um, but she's recently been promoted. Um, so congratulations. And Associate Professor Marco Ritzi from the law school. Um, so I think Katie might be from, I can't remember which department Katie's from, but I'll, we'll put that in the show notes. Um, but she's a social mm-hmm. science, political science, um, kind of focused researcher that does a lot of work in mm-hmm. The vaccination space and public policy space, and you know, um, has been very busy during COVID, as you can imagine. But it was busy before that, as you're going to hear today. Um, but we ha- we had a couple of technical issues at the start of this one, so things might sound a little bit clunky. Um, I think Katie had an issue with her the speakers on her laptop, so we got her to put some headphones in, and you know, whatnot. So yeah, there may be a, a bit of a break here and there, um, but
1: <laughs> it was yeah. a close start, but and we there got was a, a few beeps
0: and. <laughs> alerts and stuff that, that came up on people's computers as the conversation went on, but hopefully they, yeah. they won't um, ruin anyone's enjoyment. <laughs> Fairly minor.
1: <laughs> Just pretend <laughs> they don't happen. The thing is, as, as researchers, I feel like your computers and your phones are always going off. I know a particular someone where... Five minutes into every single meeting I've ever had with them, their phone will ring, uh, no matter what the meeting yeah, is for. <laughs> that's it,
0: and I think I think I know that person yeah. as well—the same person. So, anyway, <laughs> yep, yep. Um, so this topic today uh, is a, is basically a case study uh, involving two court cases in Italy um, that. Deal with the issue of vaccinations and vaccine injury in particular, and whether vaccines cause a certain illness. And in this case, autism is the illness that um, has come up before the courts in Italy. And we won't go into too much detail because Marco and Katie do a brilliant job of talking you through kind of the context and the facts of, and the circumstances in Italy um, and how this and what happened with the public health messaging and how these cases impacted on vaccine rates. And, um, you know, we try to grapple with how we can learn from this and, and improve things. Um, but yeah, we'll see what happens.
1: So yeah, uh, have a listen to the conversation and we hope you enjoy it.
0: It uh, gives me great pleasure to welcome Dr. Katie Atwell and Dr. or Professor Marco Rissi. I, I'm not sure what your oh, title is, doctor, Marco. Uh, associate Professor, so Doctor is fine. Associate <laughs> Professor. And Katie, are you an a, a Associate Professor as well?
2: Marco and I have both fairly recently been promoted. We're both ah. Associate Professors now.
0: Excellent, Congratulations. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's fantastic news, yeah. So just before we get started, you guys just want to give us a brief intro to yourselves and then we'll jump into this really meaty topic that we've got today?
3: Okay, I'll go first. Thanks, Katie. Uh, So, I am, uh, so my name is Marco Rizzi. I am Italian and I am a lawyer, a legal academic in the law school. I was trained uh, in Italy, uh, but then I've done a lot of comparative law, been working in several jurisdictions in been in the U.S., I've been in Africa, and now I'm in Australia since I've been uh, in Perth since 2018. My main areas of research are health law and policy, and risk regulation, and uh, areas of medical liability and informed consent. And I've been working with Katie on vaccination for, well, a few years now, pretty much since I started, uh, we uh, began a collaboration that is still very much ongoing.
2: My name's Katie Atwell, I'm a vaccination social scientist and policy expert. I've been working on the issue of vaccination for about 10 years, doing quite a lot of interdisciplinary research, but fundamentally as a political scientist and policy scholar, interested in the relationships between people and governments um, as it plays out through this issue of vaccination.
0: Excellent. All right. Thanks very much for those um, great intros, even though we got slightly interrupted there, (laughs) a few technical issues. Um yeah, so today we are talking about uh something that happened in italy um now it, it is about uh, vaccines and vaccine policy, um, but I guess the broader issue that we're going to cover is uh, sort of health misinformation and and pseudoscience and what happens when um you know findings that are that are have have been debunked still carry on and and get accepted as evidence um i don 't know which of you guys would like to start to kind of introduce the the case that we're going to talk about today and, and, you know, a few of the facts?
2: Maybe, if you don't mind, Marco, I'll start it because I could, I know you're Italian and know way more, but um, I would love to start by talking about how this came into my life and um, and then I can talk about how Marco came to be working on it. So I've been working on vaccination social science, as I said, for about 10 years. And I remember pretty early in my um, engagement in this topic, hearing this really terrifying news out of Italy that an Italian court had decided that vaccines caused a kid's autism, and I was like, "How does that happen?" You know, we know that the paper that Andrew Wakefield wrote in 1998, published in the Lancet, making you know giving birth to this idea that Marco and I will go on to refer to as a zombie idea. Um, you know, we most of us would know about this story, this claim uh, that it wasn't true. So, how on earth did an Italian court decide that it was? Um so I found myself in 2017 uh, in Spain um, for a uh, research um, conference and one of the people that was on the panel with me was this wonderful Italian uh, public health professor called Pierluigi Lopalco. And um, Pierlui- so Pierluigi and I were talking and I sort of said, oh, my God, like, what is this? How did this happen? Why did this happen? And he said, well, you know, we don't really know exactly how or why it happened, um, but we know that it had it had a lot of damaging consequences. And I said, well, would you like to collaborate with me so we can try and find out what happened? So that was really the genesis of this project. And um, I sort of put together a protocol and put together some plans to research it um, and also wanted to find out the relationship between what happened in Italy when this decision was made and the subsequent decision um, a few years later by the Italian government to make childhood vaccines mandatory, including the measles vaccine, because so many people had stopped doing it. So for me, this was a, a project that kind of wanted to uncover things that happened over a period of time, starting with the court case, how did that happen, and then looking at the government response and what, what did they do or not do such that we ended up having to have mandates there. So... I started doing this research um, before I met Marco and then when I met Marco, um, it was one of those lovely, um, I think Marco found out I was working on vaccines and he did too. So we had lunch together for the first time at the uni club and um, found that, you know, we liked each other and there were great synergies in our work and our relationship has only grown stronger since then. Um, And so having Marco come in kind of on the second part which should have been the first part which was the, the court case so Marco helped with all of it but Marco really took leadership um with his fabulous legal skills um in helping and of course his deep knowledge of Italy's uh, legal system and the Italian language which are two things I definitely didn't have um so he really took the lead on the first chronological piece of the work which is what the hell happened in that court and in the Italian legal system so you know, I'll probably hand over to him now if you want him to talk about that a bit more. Or, um, but I just wanted to kind of give the the background to how we came to be working together in this space from here in Perth, Western Australia, which is a long way away from where it all happened.
0: Yeah, that's very useful. Thank you, uh, Marco. Do you want to um, add to that? Yeah, sure. So, um, as Katie said, I um,
3: I saw an email come into my inbox I had only recently started at uh, UWA. How I got here is a different story and maybe for another time but um, i saw that she had just uh, been awarded a, a decra to work on on, on vaccination and uh, particularly on mandatory vaccination so we just um, yeah we had we had lunch we we started talking and she uh, mentioned that she was looking into these cases now i had been working uh, separately on uh, issues of uh, causation in vaccine injury. So that's a pretty big topic in continental Europe in particular. so uh, France uh, France, Italy, uh, even Spain, uh, there has been quite a little bit quite a bit of litigation from claimants who um, have gone to court claiming that you know a vaccine had caused some form of injury. So there's a long line of cases in France where um, claimants have been linking, Uh, multiple sclerosis with the hepatitis B vaccine. So I had been working on, on that for quite a bit of time. And I, I knew of, of course, of the Italian, um, of the Italian decisions, but I had never really, uh, looked into them. And part of that was because there wasn't a whole lot to look at. Uh, we knew that this had happened. We knew that this had happened and it was, um, it was kind of this big um, elephant in the room that no one really uh, dared poking. And as we were talking, uh, we sort of came up with a a series of ideas on how to investigate this properly. And we decided that the best way to look at this was to kind of break down the problem into a series of um, items to analyze. Now, without getting into, you know, too much into our methodology and how we we came to it, but basically what we did was we looked at three different things. So we looked at, on one hand, every uh, available document. So every official document, we did uh, freedom of information, uh, access to information requests from the tribunal of Rimini, which is, Rimini is a little town in the province of Bologna. uh, In, so, it's it's a region in central Italy, uh, which is known for a very activist uh, anti-vax or no-vax as we call them in Italy. Um, there's a very militant group there, and so it was really no. It didn't seem um, it didn't it seemed like a bit of a coincidence that the case would happen there. Uh, and as a matter of fact, it wasn't a coincidence, as we then found out. But what we did was we sought to get every public Uh, documents that we could. So uh, court transcripts, pleadings from the parties, uh, everything. And we analyzed those. And in addition, what we did was a sweeping uh, media review. So we looked at how the cases had been reported. And I should add that, so there was this case in 2012, which is the one that prompted our investigation, but there was a second one in 2014, which was in Milan. And that was interesting because there wasn't even the measles vaccine, which is the one that Andrew Wakefield fraudulently linked to the um, uh, insurgents of autism in children. That was the exavalent vaccine. And there's never been any kind of suggestion that there is any link between that vaccine and autism. So anyway, we looked at these two cases and we looked at their appeals. Both cases were overturned on appeal eventually. And what we did is, so look at every... Uh, available documents, official documents, uh, court transcripts, etc., uh, pleadings, uh, expert testimonies. Then we uh, interviewed a series of key informants, uh, including, for instance, the state attorneys uh, that had been involved in the cases at the appellate and uh, Supreme Court level. Uh, we then talked to the expert witnesses from the Ministry of Health, uh, individuals with like an in-depth knowledge of you know, the system. And, and finally we had this media review. We looked at how these two cases were reported in in the media. And I think what we came up with was really a, um, an analysis, not just of the legal domain or of the external, like political factors, but a real comprehensive look at this, at this case. And I think what was interesting, and we can, you know, we can talk about that maybe a bit more, is the fact that really what emerged is how uh, these zombie ideas, as we call them, so an idea that is dead, uh, if you look at scientific evidence, but that keeps coming back like a zombie because it is politically expedient or it serves some kind of uh, agenda. How does zombie idea really have the opportunity to emerge? Because there's never a clear-cut cause. There's never an obvious explanation. It's always a network of factors really that coalesce and, um, give this opportunity. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's what we did really. And I I don't know if Katie wants to, uh, wants to add something here or. Well, just to say, yeah, like, look, that's a great, um,
2: Yeah, great summation of what we did. So that's how we delved into the case. And um, so we used those kind of three uh, methods that Marco described. And then to delve into the government response, we looked at policy documents and we interviewed key informants who were people that worked for the government and also people that were kind of affiliated technical experts and and local academics who also had involvement and understanding of what happened Um, because you know, and again, we don't want to kind of get into the minutiae of um, exactly how, you know, the Italian legal process works in these cases, which is complex, but it, it, it sort of had struck us that there were, a, like, a, as Marco said, there's kind of a, a series of things that have to happen. And I often like the idea of the Swiss cheese model when you sort of think about... Um, how to stop something bad happening. I think they use it a lot in uh, when they think about aviation safety. So, you know, every piece of Swiss cheese has holes. Um, and unless you're actually, like, getting slices that were all cut at the same time, the, in that case, the holes will probably line up and you're going to have, like, a hole that goes all the way through. But, you know, ideally you have holes sort of in different places. Anyway, I think I'm totally butchering this analogy, but I guess <laughs> the point I'm trying to make is that, um, we were trying to work out where the fail-safes in this process should have been and why they didn't operate. So, um, you know, it's 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 legitimate that a parent would go, oh my God, you know, vaccines caused my kid's autism. Um, it's potentially even legitimate that the parent's lawyer might run with that. But how did that get further through the court process and then how did it um, because the state also plays a role in that that this is a case where the state is the person responding to this this claim so the state authorities have a responsibility to be involved in um, adequately rebutting or, or pushing that claim back likewise the courts themselves have a responsibility in in our opinion to to kind of have sufficient oversight of what's getting presented um, and, and especially what's getting determined to be um, the causation in a particular case. But then the part of the work that I led was really about sort of what decision-making was going on in government at the time um, to not perhaps give this issue the the weight it needed from their perspective to see this court cases going on and be like, oh, my God, that's probably something we should be across, um, not just the legal people but the, the public health people And then, crucially, when that decision was made, um, when it starts to be published, you know, it reached me in my little corner of Australia um, back in in 2012. Um, It it went across the world. Um, So once that decision's made um, and it starts to impact the Italian community and Italian parents in particular, and they stop vaccinating their kids against measles, mumps and rubella, um, I was really interested in tr- continuing to trace those processes and ask, well, why did the government still not do anything? Why, didn't they, why weren't they out in the public domain really debunking this? And as it turns out, they were, uh, but they weren't quite um, in the right places they needed to be and there weren't enough of them and it didn't get enough attention. It didn't get enough internal focus. Um, and so, surprise, surprise, it becomes kind of a huge public health crisis.
1: Okay, so if we let's uh, that's that's a really good summary, I think, of all the work that you guys are doing. But I think we need to uh, really understand the context of what Italy was like at the time when this situation was happening. So, um, I've read some of the articles, and I think what was happening was that um, vaccination rates were overall declining in Italy, but also there was um, a number of like it was quite common to have injuries related to vaccines go to courts and things like that. Is that right? Was that, uh, that?
3: I can I can I, I can time. answer <laughs> I can answer that. Um, so the context with Italy is that in the early nineties uh, there was a what's what we call a no fault compensation scheme was set in place. So no fault compensation scheme means that when you go instead of going to court and you litigate against an opponent. You simply present a case and if uh, the the judge, which in that case is not a judge, but like a commissioner, is satisfied that you have made your case, you are given compensation. So there's no, you're not basically, the difference is in a trial, you have an opponent. There's an adversarial system where you present your evidence, they present their evidence and the judge makes a decision. In a no-fault compensation scheme, you don't have to, you don't have to prove that anyone was at fault. All you have to show is that you suffered some form of injury, and if you can persuade the commissioner who makes the decision that your injury derives from the source that you present, so in this case the vaccine, you get a form of compensation. Now, there was at the time in the in in the nineties and early two thousands, um, what our informants um, told us was that uh, these commissions were uh, operating in what they call a sort of welfareist uh, system. So they had basically interpreted the compensation that you can get for the purpose of, you know, recuperating some costs when you, when you, when you have like a particular illness or an injury, they were treating that as a form of a social benefit, a form of welfare. And so looking at a disadvantaged family that, you know, was objectively speaking, uh, Dealing with a complex health issue, so the, in, for example, the autism of a child, uh, these commissions were increasingly using their very limited power, which was granting compensation as a form of additional welfare. Okay, so this welfareism, uh, which you know is, it, it comes from a, it comes from a good a place of beneficence in a way. You know, it comes from a place of uh, meaning well and trying to help. Uh, families that were indeed struggling, but what the effect it had is it ended up sort of normalizing, normalizing claims that were not necessarily or often not based on sound scientific evidence, and just as a, and the commissions were turned into a sort of notary that would just like put a stamp and say okay next one. Now what happened in the Rimini case? If I can start talking about that now in a bit more, what happened there? was that the, the, the commissioner uh, refused to grant compensation. So this was appealed. Now, I'm not going to get into all the technicalities, but basically when you appeal, then it goes to a court. So when the case goes to a court, you're the plaintiff. So in this case, it was the family of a child that was, uh, had developed autism. And they, their opponent was the state attorney's office who was representing the Ministry of Health. Okay. So in that context, then what happened was that you present your evidence and when there's technical evidence that is presented to a court in the continental European systems, it's not like in, 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 in Australia or in most common law systems in the continental systems, the judge has their own, they have their own experts. So the court appoints their own expert, which is someone essentially that the judge trusts. To give them advice on how to navigate technical evidence. So, what happened in that case was that the plaintiff presented their evidence, which was rife with references to Wakefield and the paper of 1998. Uh, No mention of the retraction, of course, but this is what was happening in 2012. The paper had been retracted two years earlier, and we have technical evidence brought by the plaintiff that is essentially relying on that claim, okay, so that the autism is linked to the vaccine, particularly the MMR vaccine. On the other side, the state attorney, and here is where, you know, all these various bits start coming together, they, they didn't actually go to the hearing and they didn't present an they didn't present a defense. They didn't challenge the substance of what the plaintiff was saying. What they did, what they said was they, they presented a technical defense. So basically they said, look, the Ministry of Health is not the right defendant. You should sue some regional authority, which was a very weak one. And it was based on the fact that the no-fault compensation scheme that was at the basis of all this, it's not just for vaccines. There's a number of other medical conditions that you can use that, com- that that compensation scheme for. And in other areas, that type of defense had worked. So what the state attorney office did was path dependency, well, this has worked in other areas, we're gonna use it again here and forget about it. That's one element. So they did essentially not challenge the substance. And once that defense was um, overturned by the judge, there was no one there to actually challenge the evidence so all we were left with here were on one hand the evidence of the plaintiff no evidence from the defendant and the judge who appoints their own expert witness second problem is that again the way in which courts appoint expert witnesses is not on the basis of objective criteria but every judge can appoint whoever they trust so it's a, it's called a fiduciary relationship and the guidelines are extremely broad, so you know if we went into looking at civil procedure and all of that, I'm not going to bore you with the technicalities of it. But the point is, there are registries of expert witnesses, but all you see in those registries are medical experts. Now, medical is pretty broad, and it turns out that uh, the individual who was appointed in this case was a forensic pathologist. So he wasn't someone who had experience or s- sectoral expertise in vaccination or immunology, right? Mm. And then other expert witnesses who were very privy to, you know, uh, inside information told us this man, the man that was the expert witness appointed by the court is a notorious vaccine-hesitant advocate, to put it mildly. So, so there, there are several issues. There's one, one aspect is why did the state attorney not take this more seriously? Well, part of it is because they didn't have enough resources. This was a small case in a small regional town. They're completely overworked. And so they have to prioritize cases. This was not a top priority. So they knew, they thought they had a defense, they would work. They run with that. And the idea is always, if for some weird reason we lose, we can always appeal. And then the other aspect was that the system of appointing expert witnesses in continental Europe is not like in the US. So in the US, when you have expert witnesses, courts, operators, gatekeepers, so there's a very stringent, according to some too stringent mechanism to try and keep out certain witnesses or certain evidence. In Italy, like in France, that's not the case. The The way in which you appoint these witnesses is whoever it is that the judge trusts. So that's the, pr- the primary the primary uh, normative goal of those rules is you want to have someone in there to help the judge, and the judge must trust that person. So you put these things together, and that takes us to a judgment. And the judgment was what it was. So it recognized it, uh, the existence of a causal link between the MMR vaccine and autism. And this spread like wildfire. Uh, on social media and on, you know, on, online, you know, it was 2012, so it was still a growing phenomenon. But that was part of the issue, and probably Katie can talk about that. The fact that you know, the government knew how to act on traditional media, but not on the emerging uh, world. Uh, but I think the the main thing to say from a from from the legal perspective was that both of these cases were appealed. So the Rimini one, which is the one I talked about, and then the subsequent Milan one. They were appealed successfully. So on appeal, the state brought, you know, a ton of substantive evidence, challenged the core of the claim, and was successful. But what they didn't realize at the time was the fact that um, allowing a court, uh, you know, entertaining the possibility that, okay, sorry, being in a context in which uh, you allow a case to potentially go south on the premise that, well, you can always appeal it, does not take into account the effects that that case in the first instance can have. And this is something that authorities, particularly the state attorney, struggle with because they don't have enough resources to deal with it properly. And interestingly, from a strictly speaking legal perspective, the system worked perfectly. There was a bad decision at first instance. It was an appeal. The appeal overturned the bad decision. We're all happy. Nevertheless, that's not what happened. What happened is we hardly talk about the appeals. If you look at the online world, it is still very much life with references to the first instance appeals. So the problem is that what this effectively did was it gave an institutional stamp of legitimacy to what we have referred to as a zombie idea. And the way in which this happened was a combination of circumstances that were unfavorable, but also structural problems of how uh, authorities in Italy, but generally in continental Europe, deal with these cases, which is not really focused on the science, it's more focused on value judgments.
0: Marco, can I just ask here, the amount of time between the initial decisions being made and, and covered in the media, and then them being appealed and overturned and corrected, if you like, what was the, what was the amount of time between those two things happening? About two years uh, each time. So there okay. is always,
3: th- th- that's another issue with the civil, uh, civil jurisdiction in Italy, it's very slow, and actually mm-hmm. two years is a pretty short time. I think the state attorney's office realized that this was something they had to tackle <laughs> with a certain degree of urgency, and that led to a decision uh, being made, an appellate decision being made two years later. But that's still two yeah. years, right? It's, uh, yeah. it's two years of um, uh, misinformation. Mis- yeah.
0: Misinformation. And I'd say two years is a, is a very generous amount of time for people pushing these theories to. Oh. Get, get support for them <laughs> online.
2: <laughs> it's not just a question of people pushing theories as well. So one of the things I neglected to mention is that when I met Pierluigi Luigi Palco, the Italian uh, professor of public health um, in Spain in 2017, uh, I knew him already through his work. He had um, been an author on a paper in the journal Vaccine that had basically found that um, almost immediately following that court decision parents' Google searches in Italian language for MMR and autism uh, skyrocketed. So I think it's it's really important to recognise that this is not sort of just an, a kind of nefarious idea that then, you know, bad people push out. This is a piece of, uh, you know, this is a court-sanctioned piece of evidence that's, that has, you know, mm-hmm. been stamped with approval by the state and parents go looking for it, understandably. You know, they've, mm. they've heard this reported in the news. Um, you know, it's, it's got a lot of traction in, in new media, but also in original media. And part of the um, work, in fact, this was uh, led by our um, Italian co-researcher, Virginia Castigliani. Um, Virginia sort of scraped various, uh, re- like, news sources, newspapers. So we, we stayed away from the social media um, and looked at, actual news and yeah immense coverage and she looked at the tone of that and then when it came to looking at um those appeals in some cases they weren't even reported at all and i forget whether it was us marco or one of our informants but some people didn't even know that an appeal that that that, that there had been an appeal (laughs) like it just there was like no um evidence of it that at all in the public domain
3: this Mm -hmm. came up in uh, one of my interviews with a senior state attorney was who asked me, has this been appealed? And, um, and I, and my answer to that was I think you should be telling me this because you know you're the person you know you're you're in the office that is uh, you know tasked with appealing this sort of
0: things. So, yeah, yeah, and Amazing.
3: in fact
2: that points to um, something important that came out of this as well. Um, when so Marco and I both did some of the interviews, but Marco tended to speak more to the people who are in the legal field and um, he was able to do them in Italian, which is also really helpful. Um, But, you know, one of the things we sort of, when you're trying to follow a a sort of catastrophic failure like this and make sense of it, you obviously want to learn lessons for the future. So, you know, we we asked in all of the interviews, you know, how could this have been prevented? What could have been done differently? Um, And what we saw was, um, you know, legal and public health experts kind of in their own time you know at night in front of the you know boxy desktop computer going online trying to intervene in public debate trying to let people know that these cases have been appealed trying to you know having this civic responsibility to correct the record and again you know Marco talked about that siloed legal world where well you know bad decisions get overturned and the system's working Um, And that siloed world does not do a very good job of looking out and going, well, what are the impact of these things? So part of the recommendations was we actually should have a way of publicising and, you know, promoting when a decision is made, in in this case, in favour of the state and in favour of the safety of vaccines, which is a hugely important issue, and for that to actually get significant traction in the media, for, for there to be a, an a organ or arm of the state that really pushes that message out mm-hmm. so that it can be picked up by the people who had previously picked up that message that vaccines cause autism.
0: Yeah.
3: Um, there certainly, sorry, uh, There was certainly a major source of frustration for all, for our interviewees. I think I just wanted mm-hmm. to stress the point that, they felt quite powerless in the sense that, on one hand, the substantive job had been done, the cases had been appealed. So, uh, you know, in a way, uh, true, the, the, the scientific truth had been restored. Mm. And yet, uh, their inability to have an impact on public discourse was something that was really quite uh, frustrating uh, for, for, for many of them.
0: Hi. We hope you're enjoying this episode. If you have a minute and enjoy the conversations we bring you, it'd be great if you could go to wherever you get your podcasts and give us a quick rating and review. Not only do we love to get your feedback, but it also helps other people to find us. Thank you. And now back to the show.
1: So do you guys know now whether there's been any improvements in their communication strategies? We, we know it's a frustration,
2: so it's been eight, eight uh, seven years. So one of the points I'd like to make here is I don't think, you know, I don't think there's been a review. I mean, yeah. Mark, one of, the, one of the reasons this is probably the most fun and interesting project I've ever done, <laughs> and by the way, I shouldn't say fun because it's, like, awful and there's awful fascinating, things. Fascinating, though. Yeah, fascinating. <laughs> and, you know, also just wanted to acknowledge right at the beginning of this there are parents who are struggling with a diagnosis for their kid who... They're wrong about the cause, but you know they're grappling you with something. Problem is real. real. Yeah, but you know, um, one of the things that was it made it so fascinating was that we—it really felt like we were breaking ground, like we were discovering things that nobody else knew. Other people knew little bits and pieces. Obviously, we put all of this together from documents and from speaking to people, um, and from you know Marco's close engagement with the, with the legal cases themselves. But we were the first people to actually bring all of this together and, you know, it, it kind of, it just occurs to me speaking to you guys now that, you know, in other places there might be a review. I reckon in Australia there might be a review of, like, how did this happen? You know, effectively Marco and I have done that review um, and, you know, it's only very, re- our findings have only very recently been published and, of course, they're kind of locked in. We've actually paid to have them open access, which is really important. We're in the post process of drafting a much more um, reader friendly for a mass audience um, account of basically both both articles, one about the court case, one about the government response. But, you know, yeah, I feel like even our knowledge is still kind of locked away to an extent. And so I think, you know, the, the, the little pieces of the puzzle, the, the, the cogs in the machine that, that, that were all part of this, are probably just still head down, bum up, just doing their jobs the best they can. And of course, Italy's had a Dreadful time with COVID 19. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't imagine much navel gazing is actually going on about this.
3: And mm. if I can add, um, one of the problems, as we uncovered in the, in the paper that Katie led, one of the problems was that Italy in 2012 was coming out of an awful, well, was still in the midst of an awful time. So, with the great financial crisis, Europe kind of went hardcore down the path of austerity and particular southern uh, economies like Italy, uh, Greece, Spain, Portugal uh, were really, were hit very hard. And one of the portfolios that was hit very hard in, in Italy was uh, health. Uh, was health and when you have to cut... Communications, outreach campaigns, things like that it, it tend to be the first thing to go because you all, you all your energies are focused on trying to keep you know keep the shit going mm-hmm. and um, in the meantime, so what's happened since then in terms of um, you know have they learned any lesson? Uh, I think I agree with Katie that there hasn't been a uh, proper review. These cases are still kind of sometimes someone talks about it and uh, uh, with you know a mix of horror and 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 point the finger to like something very bad that happened. But there hasn't been any systematic review. I think certainly governments not just in Italy but everywhere have learned to deal with the online world more. So in that sense. I don't I wouldn't say it's a specific learning, but it is more generally like things have evolved in a way that is probably a bit more attuned to the to, to today's world, although probably there are new new problems now, right? Like maybe maybe now there's weird stuff on TikTok and who knows how TikTok works, etc. But the problem which I think remains structural is that we haven't, as a country, so Italy, hasn't had uh a lot of um hasn't had much of a break. So we went straight from the financial crisis. And as soon as while things were starting to get back on track, when COVID hit, and now we have the war in Ukraine, and the war in Ukraine has a massive impact for most economies because of the price of energy, et cetera. And all of this is to say that things like strategic long-term impact of communication, Uh, for public health purposes does not tend to be the priority of governments that have to deal with a crisis, one crisis after the next. So I'm not super optimistic about your question. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think some improvements have happened as a product of time, you know, know, evolving times. But I I don't believe that there has been any specific finding. Plus, we haven't had yet a chance to really publicize our, uh, our research uh, with uh, the key stakeholders which is one of the things we definitely should do in the...
0: mm. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of arms to this that I find fascinating um, particularly I've also originally got a background in law as well Marco and one, one thing that jumped off the page at me reading your article um, was that there was in the Milan case there was an autism specialist who asserted the principle of exclusion of alternative causes in saying well there's no alternative causes. So this hexavalent vaccine must be the cause, which sounds kind of something you get in theology, you know, when someone's trying to explain what a miracle, what's caused a miracle or something like that, which I, yeah, obviously that, that raises um, uh, concerns about the, the way that these experts are appointed to the courts. And we have a very different system in Australia where you need to be, you need to be well qualified to be called as an independent expert in, in court and for your evidence to be given. Um, But yeah, I I guess the other thing is, and we sort of alluded to it there earlier, is it's not a zero-sum game. There's obviously money and resources that can get spent on um, promotion of health and public health and things like vaccinations and whatever. And if those things fall over, then that has real consequences for the health system down the line when you have a lot of unvaccinated people going on who may get sick from these diseases that they could be vaccinated against and i'm just wondering if there's been any discussion about that in in italy about the consequences potential consequences for the public health system and the hospitals and that sort of thing
3: so i think i can take the first bit which is about um that weird uh, method of evaluating um causes and and maybe katie can speak, speak a bit more to the the broader policy issue so you're, I think you, you've touched on, uh, yeah, a really <laughs> interesting aspect of those cases, the the principle of, uh, so there are no re- reasonable alternative causes or the most probable, this is the most probable cause in the absence of realistic alternatives. And I think this goes back to who, who were these people? So who were these experts? And that's in the Milan case, but much like in the R- Rimini case, um, the expert witness appointed by the court was a forensic pathologist, and it transpires that in forensic pathology, that is actually at least in the way in which it is practiced in 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 in, in the in that in that context, it is not an unreasonable method in the sense that if you have to figure out why did the person that the, the body that I'm doing an autopsy on, so I'm 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 trying to figure out the cause of death, you kind of work your way. By exclusions. Now, I'm sure that if there's a forensic pathologist listening to this, they will be horrified by how I'm <laughs> trying. What I'm trying to say is that it is not an unacceptable way of reasoning about causes in that particular context. But of course, if you translate that to a completely different context, which is in this case, what caused the autism, well, that that, that is potentially very risky because maybe circumstantial, maybe the circumstances suggest that you can't quite find out what the exact cause is. And that's because maybe, you know, there isn't one, there isn't an exogenous cause that just came in and and caused this thing to happen. Uh, but if this is how you're used to operate, then, then it, it is rather, it is understandable that this type of reason, which is not to excuse it, but it's kind of, a way to understand how it may have worked its way into the into the testimony and then into the judgment, and that really goes back to the method of appointment of uh, expert witnesses in Italy. And again, I think the best comparator here is the United States, which is kind of the opposite end of the spectrum. So, in the United States, courts have this really stringent mechanism of gatekeeping to get to allow evidence and witness expert witnesses into the courtroom. Whereas we have this way more um, kind of, it's more of a personal, personality (coughs) issue, sorry, a personality issue in which uh, it is important for the judge to trust the expert because eventually it is for the judge to come to the judicial truth of the case. So you have these two mechanisms of truth production which do not overlap at all and that can give rise to, you know, very surprising uh, turns of events like the one in the in the Milan case. As to what are the implications for, you know, more, more generally, the one thing I can say is that we found that uh, the number of claims for autism increased quite significantly. So families started relying on this after it happened. So as you say, it's not a zero-sum game, but I think eventually uh, what the consequences were, I think Katie's best place to, to talk about that. Thanks, Marco.
2: So I think... Um, I think, so obviously it's just a couple of facts that the listeners might want to know, is that in in 2017, uh, Italy faced a devastating measles outbreak. So there were a lot of cases. And although um, it spread a lot through un- or under-vaccinated adults, um, many perhaps, for example, might have migrated from other places where they had not been measles vaccinated as a kid, most of us are supposed to get boosters uh, of the measles vaccine. So for any listeners out there who have not had a measles vaccine since you were a kid, um, probably a good idea to think about going to get one. It is free. Um, anyway, so, uh, you know, so the so measles spread through unvaccinated people or under-vaccinated people, but it did also affect kids who had not been vaccinated, um, as well as, of course, Babies who were too young to be vaccinated. So, um, so that was definitely a real wake up call for the country, and really was the prompt for the uh, introduction of vaccine mandates to cover measles. So, again, without wanting to get into too much of the detail, um, Italy had mandatory vaccines for four. diseases already but they didn't cover measles mumps rubella it was basically for older vaccines that and there'd been a tendency uh when those older vaccines were introduced that you you should make them mandatory and then um much more of a kind of voluntaristic ethos in public health as the newer ones came in oh let's make them voluntary but really try and promote them and get people to do it um and so basically um it was a bit of a lesson um it maybe wasn't the right lesson, but the lesson that policymakers took was, well, you know, if we don't make it mandatory, people won't do it or they won't feel the need to do it as much or we need to kind of make it harder for them to get out of it. But they also believed that making it mandatory would be a communications exercise, which would be the state reassuring people because we wouldn't make you do this thing if it wasn't actually safe. So that's part of the piece. But one of the things that frustrated me, I guess, and look, this was an exis—this a really interesting exercise for me because it's very, like I'm very like single-minded. I'll sort of disappear down a particular track or rabbit hole or pathway. So it was very easy for me to kind of look at this whole story and be like, why didn't they do all the things? And And to just see how complex and messy every single decision is along the way. Every single hole in this Swiss cheese has its own story, if you like. But um, one of the things that I was really conscious that didn't happen was a really good public messaging campaign about the safety and efficacy and importance of measles vaccine for kids in Italy. And that was just missing. And so um, when I spoke to government officials, they said, look, we knew this needed to happen. Every year we went and asked for money from the finance uh, department because health you know, had a budget, but it wasn't a big enough budget. So every, every time they wanted to do something big, like extra. And that was another interesting thing. Like who, who decides these things? Is it elected officials or is it um, technical experts and bureaucrats? And Really, the amount of money that was needed for that kind of campaign would have had to be signed off by the elected officials. If you think about in Australia, like the, the COVID nineteen vaccination campaigns we've seen on telly and stuff, they are political decisions by our elected officials. So, you know, the elected officials weren't doing anything, and the people senior in um, senior in the public service who could perhaps have made the pitches to the uh, to the elected officials or could have diverted some existing funds. You know, this is just, again, like Marco said, this is like one claim amongst many of things that need to get done during a time of austerity. So the campaign just didn't happen. And interestingly, only after Italy introduced the mandates for these um, new extra vaccines, did they finally have a decent communications campaign where they used an astronaut and a sports person and they built a good social media site and, you know, finally kind of pushed the... To the public um, how important vaccines are so yeah it was but I found in my comparative work on other places including France and Australia um, that have also recently made childhood vaccination more mandatory more consequences if you don't do it um, often unfortunately that is the case you do the mandate then you do the communications piece and I really wish it was the other way around. <laughs>
0: And that that happened with COVID here in WA. They mandated it for a a range of sectors, like workers in a range of sectors. And then they said, oh, you know, then they thought, oh, we better try and convince people that it's a good idea afterwards.
3: (laughs) You know, just uh, one thing that Katie was saying um, uh, that, that, that I think made me think is another aspect that it was specific to Italy at the time is that after 2013, uh, uh, there's been a lot of discontent uh, with politics. And this has been embodied by a particular party for uh, quite a bit, for about a decade in Italy. And this party uh, was like a uh, post-ideological, anti-establishment, anti-pretty-much-everything. And they got a significant amount of votes in the 2013 election and then in the 2018 elections even more. And the fact is that a lot of uh, anti-scientific conspiracy and including anti-vax sentiment was found representation in a number of elected MPs to the point where vaccination had become a controversial subject in public uh, opinion. There was this thing that then, you know, it, it's a widespread problem, not just Italy, but like we would have experts from all sides quote unquote. So you need to, uh, you know, freedom of expression requires us to listen to every side of the story. And so you would have, you know, esteemed virologists, uh, debating with, um, I don't know, mom one, two, six, xx, who is, uh, you know, telling you that if you eat, um, you know, garlic and other such things, your immune system will be fine. And the problem then was not just, uh, therefore that, um, because, as Katie said, this is, these are decisions: Are we going to invest in a campaign? Are we going to put the government's stamp on a campaign? Uh, the, these were decisions that, especially when you're dealing with uh, severe financial constraints, anything that is not politically expedient or that might cause, uh, you know, some political backlash, is something that you're just going to stay away from. And and that is, I think, part of the explanation why we haven't had any of that until after the mandatory vaccination was in place. Because at that point, the government was like, okay, here, (laughs) we have a problem. We have 5,000 cases in a year of measles. We can't deal with that. And the interesting thing now is that after COVID, vaccination is certainly a lot less controversial, uh, which, you know, there's I'm not going to say that there's any good side of the pandemic, but uh, in terms of public debates, one thing that we... has noticeably been diminishing is um, the amount of vaccine hesitancy or, or refusal that is given airspace on television or on public discourse. I mean, it's still there, you know, obviously, uh, but it has less of a bit of a, less of less a hype uh, around it, at least in Italy.
1: I guess one of the things with that is like, you're right that we shouldn't say anything good comes out of a pandemic, but... Sometimes there are. Um, it's one of those things where people can look at the, the risks and benefits. So it, getting a vaccine when there's only one or two people that get the disease, they think it's worse off getting the vaccine. Um, but suddenly when everyone around you is sick and this is your only form of protection, Um the, the benefits outweigh the risks and I can see why he- hesitancy for vaccines would go down, um, particularly in Italy who were hit quite hard with COVID.
3: Yeah, and with the boosters, like here, like everywhere, there is a bit, it's kind of dragging because convincing people to get, you know, one shot after another after another is, 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 is difficult. But certainly for the first and the second dose, uh, the, the, the,
0: the rates were incredibly high. Mm. Yeah, okay. So, so it sounds like the sort of take home messages here are, are a lot around communication and prevention as opposed to trying to fix things after they've gone wrong. Um, obviously, we, that's a luxury, you know, in many cases. Usually we are reacting to things that have happened. Um, but yeah, did you guys have any sort of final take home points, take home messages about what we've learned about this case and how we could prevent this happening in Italy again and, and elsewhere?
2: Um, I guess just super quick I mean yeah the department of um, the Ministry of Health that was tasked with this is called prevention Um, and as Marco said it's um, particularly prevention that is the first thing to get cut in times of austerity but it is a false economic calculation you know Mm. you 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 elect not to prevent at your peril Mm. Uh, but also you know there are there are complexities there's deep complexities here around the functioning of the legal system which i'm sure marco might want to close off with with his remarks so you know there in in many ways this was a perfect storm but the other but the things that went wrong here even just in isolation could and probably will continue to go wrong Um, and unfortunately I'm not super optimistic about lesson learning, but, um, Marco and I are academics. I guess our role is to put out there what we've learned, what we know, what we think could improve, uh, you know, circumstances in the future, but it's going to take a way bigger machine than us to implement those.
3: I think prevention for sure is the, is the key message and, and tools that you can use to prevent, um, and So Katie, Katie was talking about the fact that, uh, unfortunately it's the first thing to go, but it is a false economy. I would argue that austerity in general is premised on a false economy because it always ends up cutting services that uh, you end up having to pay more at the other end to, to redress what, uh, what isn't, uh, what isn't being done, uh, initially. But other than that, I think there are also specific problems. And one, to me, from a, from a legal perspective and as a legal academic who is interested in the relationship between the health and the scientific world and the legal world, there is an obvious issue of how scientific methods and the scientific, scientific truths and the scientific method is, becomes embedded into the legal system. And uh, there's always going to be a little bit of friction between the two, right? Because the reality of uh, cases is that you have, they're very black and white. So, you know, one case can go one side, one way or another, and uh, you don't have other options. So when there's a claim, it, it's either successful or unsuccessful. Science, of course, has the benefit of a lot more nuance in the sense that it doesn't have to answer uh, you know, you may ask a question to start with, and then the answer is completely different. But that is in of itself mm-hmm. interesting, because it leads to other questions, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So there is a problem that is unavoidable. However, there is a structural issue with where do you strike the balance between uh, adherence to a scientific method and adherence to a more kind of normative or value-based type of uh, decision making. And the argument that we that we make in 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 our research is that when there, you know you are in a field that, that has established scientific evidence, well courts perhaps should should adopt more of a gatekeeping function and less of a sort of normative decision making because the risk is uh, to really give the stamp of legitimacy to these zombie ideas that then you know, they take up a life of their own. They may be dead in the scientific world, but this is what happened here. The Wakefield thesis was dead in the scientific world, but this gave it kind of a new life, uh, a new social life, which was a lot more dangerous, actually, than its its previous scientific life. And so that's, I think, one of the big learnings uh, that is more specific to how the legal system works. There is a balance that we need to strike between uh, science and law, and that's always going to be controversial, and there's always going to be frictions. But uh, probably at the moment, the parameters are a bit too far in the direction of, uh, you know, leaving it to normative and value judgments um, of the individual judge, particularly in continental Europe. So yeah, that was probably the main learning from a legal perspective. Mm.
1: And I guess from a from a broader perspective, uh, as researchers. Uh, we also need to help with the translation when ideas like that are dead so that information can be spread out. I don't think it should just rely on governments and, and, you know, their funding. But as researchers and academics, if we believe something's dead, then we should really promote that as well, no matter how many times we have
3: to. (laughs) 100%, which is why I think, uh, you know, our focus is... And, and I think that's increasingly a, a responsibility of researchers, particularly of researchers who operate in socially sensitive areas. And there's no doubt that vaccination policy is a socially sensitive one. Uh, the goal, is I, it shouldn't just be to produce you know, rigorous research, but it also has to be disseminated through you know, channels that are more and more diverse. It's more work, for sure, and the work is more, <laughs> more challenging because it's not necessarily something we're trained. We're not, you know, we're yeah. trained, we do our PhDs and we're, we're trained to, you know, do research in certain ways and we do it really well, but then, um, you know, communicating that those results in a way that is effective and that can affect change, that is, uh, it's not as obvious, but it is certainly an integral part of the job because, as you say, we can't just rely on public officials who have, are more and more stretched and have to deal with more and more complex issues, and uh, so yeah, I, I totally, I totally agree with that. And this is actually uh, one of the main focuses at the moment.
0: Yeah, I think funding bodies that fund research are starting to recognise that as well because the metrics they're using to to evaluate who who should receive funding are changing and, you know, stuff like social media and, and, um, you know, television interviews and radio interviews are now being considered, given more weight when people make applications. And I think that's just a nod to that, that these findings need to be made more accessible to people, to the everyday person. So, yeah. So Katie had to um, dash off there. I know she's very busy and I'm sure she had (laughs) another meeting to go to. Um, But, yeah, Marco, it's been really great. Um, chatting to you, and we really appreciate your time today and your expertise, and and for going through this case so so forensically for us. It was great. Thanks for having us. Um, it's a great podcast. So thank you. And oh, thanks. <laughs> thanks very much. And that was our conversation with Associate Professor Katie Atwell and Associate Professor Marco Rizzi. What do you think, Courtney?
1: I I do love the um the Swiss, Swiss cheese analogy. It just it makes so much sense for complex issues like this one. Um, I've heard it before for other situations, but I thought it was very good for this particular conversation. Yes,
0: uh, I think so as well. Um, you know and that 's the same with any government system there 's always gaps and weaknesses, I guess if you like, for one of a better word and in this case, you know those weaknesses were quite severely exposed um, both in the legal system and then also in the public health system in response to what the legal system had, had essentially done, which was <laughs> to legitimize um, these zombie ideas about um, autism being caused by the MMR vaccine and the hexavalent vaccine. Um, Yeah, really quite, I guess, shocking in some ways, but also kind of understandable when, when you hear Marco's explanation around the circumstances and the way things work in Italy and how some of this evidence which has been relied on could end up before the courts and and be kind of affirmed by the courts, if you like. And then obviously the process, the the legal process is always slow in every country, you know, when it comes to appealing decisions and getting decisions overturned. But it just unfortunately left a a two-year window where these ideas kind of ran wild, you know, through social media and the internet. And uh, as a a result, we saw an outbreak of measles in partly in part due to to this issue i think in italy
1: yeah and it's unfortunate because like understanding and kind of hearing the the context and the reasons for why certain things happened it's not like anyone was trying to do a bad thing it it was it was coming from moral people who wanted to do good and improve health and all that kind of stuff. But it just happens that there were some some holes in some knowledge or there were some technical issues um, that kind of all led to this situation where a big message that shouldn't have gone yeah.
0: out. I, I look, I think in, it's possible that some of the expert witnesses uh, in these legal cases may have been mm-hmm. willfully, um, not misleading, but May have adopted certain personal beliefs that that were inconsistent with the established yeah. evidence, um, and and sought yeah. to kind of um, impress those beliefs on the court, and obviously convince the judge mm-hmm. in the absence of any opposition from the government, who were supposed to be opposing them. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's look, it, it is, and this if if anyone's really interested in this area, Katie's work delves into. All things vaccination around attitudes and hesitancy, and you know why people might become a bit anti-vax or um, you know vaccine curious. Um, Yeah, she's done a lot of work. She's one of the most published authors I think I've ever seen in terms of academia. If you look at her track record over the last few years, she's.
1: Does she have a Google Scholar? I
0: believe so. You'll be able to find
1: Katie. Yeah,
0: she's she's pretty active in. (laughs) in ensuring that her work gets out there and that she's um, mm-hmm. accessible and you can you can find her work. Um, but, yeah, a lot of work been done on attitudes towards vaccines, what drives people for and against vaccines, um, you know, trying to break down kind of the socio-demographic issues and um, backgrounds that people might have. Um, but yeah, fascinating area. And you can go back and listen to our previous yeah. episode with Katie where she talks about that in more detail in the context of COVID. Um, but yeah, it's just uh, yeah a fascinating conversation. And obviously having a bit of a law background myself, I, I, I found that the legal decisions baffling but interesting. Um, and then obviously you know having a, a current focus on public health, Um, You know, the public health impacts of this, uh, I think, are a a fascinating case study. Uh, And hopefully things don't sort of spiral out of control and, you know, they can get on top of it, you know, going forward and maybe learn from this, this experience.
1: Definitely. And I think it's something that affects everyone globally in that prevention is something that Goes first when there's a crisis because people go into survival mode yeah. and they just want to get through it, get done, and then deal with the consequences later. But the reality is, and it's you know this is an example of where it does go wrong. But when it goes right, it's so much better for yep. everyone.
0: That's true, and, and as Marco said, there the experience with COVID and vaccinations for COVID has been mm. completely completely different. Because I think a lot of people in Italy in particular, which is one of the first public health systems to kind of fall over during COVID in, in Europe, yeah. they've had that direct personal experience, you know, of seeing people get really sick and die, you know, people that they know or are related exactly. to, you know, firsthand before vaccinations were available. So you saw great uptake in places like Italy and Spain, you know, initially. Um, you know, they were they were really badly affected by COVID. So, yeah, it's uh, re- really interesting. That that's that's what it takes for people to be so motivated. You know, it's,
1: it always ends up having to be personal. I doesn't think it? it's <laughs> it's unfortunate that we we as a human species we struggle to uh, learn from other people's experiences. But as soon as it becomes personal, yeah, then that people's that's views it. change. Yep.
0: I, I see that with with people exactly. when I have conversations about uh, prisons all the time. You know, about how we should how we of should course. treat people that are in prison, and their their attitude changes significantly. If they have had either per, personal experience or someone close to them has had experience with going to prison compared to those who've never had an experience, so their attitudes change. Anyway,
1: I mean, yeah, <laughs> I've, I've gone through exactly the same thing <laughs> with um, the illicit drug yeah. project. You know, before I think I was very naive and now I understand more about it. And yeah. it's, yeah, it's a completely different yeah,
0: perspective. Um, yeah. So, yeah. anyway.
1: It's funny what context and That's learning it. does.
0: <laughs> but by, by the time this episode goes out to people, I think you will be—you'll be, um, you'll oh, be no. waiting for your reviewers to come back to you about <laughs> uh-huh. your PhD, which will have been submitted.
1: Uh, you're right. So, you're absolutely right. So, uh, congratulations um, in advance. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, we can confirm that. In, in the show notes or something, whether it's, yeah. it's actually happened. and
0: I'll look forward to getting the cake <laughs> and, um, that you'll be obliged to bring into the school.
1: Oh, yes, yes. We have to bring our own cake. Um, but I I am going to send the email that we have to, uh, titled mug collection, and I'm getting my PhD oh, mug. Very good.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, yeah. in the meantime, how do people get in touch with us, Courtney?
1: You can tweet us at health means What. Or you can email us meaningofhealth at outlook.com. We would love to hear from you, uh, whether it's you know to say congratulations to me for f- submitting my PhD, or if you want to talk about uh, the the podcast today, or any other podcast. If you have people you'd like to see on uh, this podcast to have a conversation with us, we would yes. love to just chat. And with you can you, also join uh, and hear you can thoughts. also
0: join the current stampede towards our page on Facebook as well at uh, yes. meaning of Health. So yeah, plenty of ways to, to get in touch. And yeah, we hope you guys have enjoyed this episode today and we will look forward to joining you again soon with another one. The Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the Education Enhancement Unit and the School of Population and Global Health at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Webber, with editing, mixing and additional music by Craig Cumming.